Aloha, this is Ben Pregnow, and you're listening to the weekend teaching from Hope Chapel in Kihei, Maui. This week we're hearing from a guest speaker. Well, we are finishing the study of the book of John, and we began this in January with John declaring this, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. We began this study in January with two astonishing declarations that John makes. He said that God had taken on the form of a human body, born as the man Jesus Christ who lived among his people and explained all that we needed to know about God. And that this man Jesus is also the creator of our world and of the universe. What an outlandish announcement. You know, John's first century audience understood this concept of the logos, the word, to mean God's active creative force, his design, his rational order of the universe. And he says Jesus is that logos. But how can we believe something so seemingly absurd? This man, Jesus, was God in the flesh. Well, some will say that he said amazing things. Well, my wife, Laura, says amazing things, okay? Others will point that he, out that he performed many miracles, turning water into wine, healing people, feeding 5,000 with a few pita breads and fish, raising people from the dead even. But I know many people who pray for the sick and they get well. We've worked with ministries for years that miraculously feed thousands every year with very little resources. And I have a DVD of a pastor who was in a car accident, killed, pronounced dead by the hospital, by the funeral director, but was taken to a Reinhard Bonnke meeting in Nigeria, and on film, he came back to life. What a documentary that was. See, Jesus is not just a good teacher or a miracle worker. He was very clear in his public statements to his first century audience that he indeed is God. And what do you do with that? The Jews gathered around him were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I am the Father, our one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. You see, Yahweh himself told us, the Jews, and us, <laughs> that we're not to worship any other God but him. Exodus 20, it's the start of the Ten Commandments. I'm the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Don't have any other gods before me. So how do you convince a group of religious Jews who only worship the one true God 
that Jesus is that one true God? And how did a movement that was started by these religious Jews in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire spread to include a majority of the empire's population? It did, you know. Sociologist Rodney Stark documents in his book, The Rise of Christianity, that this belief that Jesus was indeed God had less than 10,000 followers at the end of the first century. But 250 years later, that number had grown to more than 33 million believers. And that's 53% of the empire's population. And remember that Roman culture during that time is very similar to the culture we find ourselves in right now. Because the Romans practiced infanticide. They threw their babies off the bridges of the Tiber River when they didn't want them anymore. There was fluid sexuality with no moral standard against same-sex relationships, adultery, or even bestiality. There was widespread corruption among the government and above the business sector. And most of the Roman world was under heavy oppression by the Roman military might. There was extreme poverty among the majority of the empire with an elite enjoying privileged lives and political rights and another standard of justice than the common people. Christians were viewed as threats to traditional Roman society. They were denied basic rights, imprisoned, and publicly executed. Does this sound a little bit like where our world is and where it's going today? So what was the driving belief that caused Christianity to grow in spite of this punitive opposition? And another question, what may be the powerful belief that will be the spark of widespread revival among our present culture? It's a good question. Well, John gives us the answer to these questions as he finishes his biography of Jesus. And here's where we left off when Ben taught last week. They took Jesus. He went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull, Golgotha. There they crucified him. Jesus received the sour wine. He said, it's finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The soldiers came. They broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. They didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. So he who has seen has testified, this is John, and his testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth that you may also believe. So they took the body of Jesus, bound in linen wrappings and spices as a burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, in the garden a new tomb, and which no one yet had been laid. You see, Jesus' death was a real shock to his disciples. This is not what they expected at all. Even though Jesus told them many times that this would happen, but still they didn't believe him. Jesus even rebuked uh, Jesus. Uh, Peter even rebuked Jesus for saying such nonsensical things, telling Jesus, hey, we got your back. Because they expected Jesus to lead the revolt against the Romans and restore the Jewish kingdom. And how could he do that if he was killed? Well, Matthew quotes that Jesus showed his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. 
be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and rebuked him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block for me. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man. You see, they didn't get it. They didn't get the fact that this was going to happen, and they certainly forgot the last part of that, that he would rise from the dead. So let's begin this most significant chapter of the entire Bible on which the hope of our faith rests upon. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and she found Simon Peter and the other disciple, John, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple ran, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter went inside. He noticed the linen wrappings lying there. The cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then he, the disciple John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For until they... Then they still hadn't understood the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head, the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied. And I don't know where they've put him. She turned to leave, and she saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which means teacher in Hebrew. Don't cling to me, Jesus said for I yet, haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father, your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. And she gave them his message. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As they spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And Luke adds that even though they were filled with joy, there was some disbelief. So Jesus asked for a piece of fish, and he ate it in front of them, because apparently spirits or ghosts don't eat food. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. This time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, You believe because you've seen me? Blessed are those who believe 
without seeing me. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in the book, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. This is the most remarkable, breathtaking event in all of human history, the resurrection. Jesus was publicly executed by the Romans on Passover Friday through a most horrible method, crucifixion. He died, a, after he died, a Roman soldier speared him through the chest, hitting his lungs and heart, ensuring that he indeed had died. Yet on Sunday, his tomb was empty and he was seen by his disciples, even eating with them. There's no other man in human history who died in such a manner after making claims of divinity who resurrected and was publicly seen by hundreds after. No other. So why is this the most fabulous event in all recorded history? Well, let me just read what a few scholars and historians say. Adrian Rogers, a very good, well-known Bible teacher, says... The resurrection is not merely important to the historical Christian faith. Without it, there would be no Christianity. It is the singular doctrine that elevates Christianity above all world religions. And one of my favorite characters is a professor of law from uh, Harvard University, Simon Greenleaf. Simon wrote the book on evidence admissible in the court of law that every law school in America used. Simon did his research, and he says this, the foundation of our religion is a basis of fact, the fact of the birth, ministry, miracles, death, resurrection by the evangelists as having actually occurred within their own personal knowledge. You see, you're going to have many people that say this never happened. It's all mythology. I want you to hear what reasonable academic scholars say about this. Josh McDowell says, no matter how devastating our struggles, our disappointments, and our troubles, they're only temporary. No matter what happens to you, no matter the depth of tragedy or pain that you face, are you hearing me this morning? No matter how death stalks you and your loved ones, the resurrection promises you a future of immeasurable good. Powerful statements about the most incredible event in human history. The Bible records that a Pharisee named Saul, who we know him as Paul of Tarsus, he persecuted and imprisoned and killed followers of Jesus, but he had his own life encountering uh, uh, altering an encounter with the risen Lord. And he says this, I passed on to you what was important and what also had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter, then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by the apostles. Last of all, as though I'd been born at the wrong time, he also, I also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. So what's the importance of the resurrection according to Paul in our personal lives? He says this, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, 
your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep for Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Well, how can we in the 21st century actually believe that this happened? Eyewitness testimony is one of the best sources of historical data, especially ancient events. And when Paul says, you know, that Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time to his friends in Corinth, he said, many of them are alive. Go ask him if you don't believe me. And I'm sure that many of you have met people over the years and had conversations who consider the Bible to be just mythology, like stories told around a campfire that have no historical accuracy. I had professors at university that taught me that, and for a while, I believed them. But then I began doing my own research, and I discovered that there are many prominent historians who claim just the opposite, that the Bible is a worthy historical record. One of my favorites is an archaeologist who began digging up Asia Minor in the early 1900s, professor of archaeology from Oxford University in England, William Ramsey. He didn't believe the Bible was anything other than just stories, but when he started doing his digging, and he discovered the book of Acts was so accurate in its description, and he considered Luke to be one of the most prominent historians of ancient times. You see, modern archaeology has changed everything in this regard as discovery after discovery has confirmed the biblical record. And I want you to hear this because you're going to have conversations with people, and some of you here came into the room thinking that the Bible is our mythology. And I want you to hear from the most eminent archaeologist of our time, William Albright. He said there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. The excessive skepticism shown toward the Bible by important historical schools of the 18th and 19th centuries, certain phases of which still appear periodically, has been progressively discredited. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and brought an increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. I want you to remember these quotes because they're very important in our own faith, but just in our witness to our community. In addition, re recent academic scholarship has emphasized the importance of this personal testimony in the writings of the Bibles, as well as debunking the theories that you hear from prominent historians of our time who say the New Testament was written 100 to 200 years after the deaths of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus really didn't ever say he was God. Those were words that were put into his mouth afterwards. Well, Richard Bauckham in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitness, wrote this. He says, the gospel were written in living memory of the events of, that they recount. Mark's gospel was written well within the lifetime of many of the eyewitnesses, while the other three canonical gospels were written in the period when the living eyewitnesses were becoming scarce, exactly at that point in time when their testimony would perish with them if it were not put in writing. We need to recognize that historically speaking, Testimony is a unique and uniquely valuable means of access to historical reality. 
Testimony is the category that enables us to read the Gospels in a properly historical way and a properly theological way. This is where history and theology meet. And I think it's really important that we all know this, not only for our own faith, but for that next conversation that you have with your skeptical friend. So how did the church grow in the impressive, oppressive environment of Rome? It's the historical element of the resurrection that was the impetus of the rapid spread of the gospel among the Roman Empire. Christianity grew rapidly because Jesus said he was going to be killed and then resurrected, and this is, in fact, what happened. See, there's many who claim to be the uh, Messiah throughout history, but we only remember one, Jesus, okay? Because of his resurrection. And because of the resurrection, we can all accept all those other things that Jesus said about himself and about us we can accept them as true. It's the hinge of Christianity. See, it was in 1981 that the resurrection became personal for me. I had heard about it all my life. I had celebrated Easter with colored eggs, chocolate bunnies, Easter egg hunts, but I never understood the personal implications. Then in 1981, I came to Maui, and I got pulled into the Hope Chapel community. And like some of you, this was the start of an ongoing experience with God. It, it became very real to me. I realized the resurrection was a very real event. I understood that Christianity was true. I appreciated that Jesus paid the price for my sins, and it, it became really personal for me. And I began to evaluate these areas of my life, of my thinking and my behavior, and especially in my relationships with other people. You see, I wanted to know the truth of how I should think, of what I should be doing according to God, and not just my own selfish desires. And it was during that time that I began reading some of Jesus' promises to me and promises to you. For example, knowing right from wrong, truth from lies. And I realized truth is simply God's opinion on things as well as the principles of his design that I saw all around me. Gravity, physical laws, mathematics, aerodynamics, orbital mechanics. These are God's way of showing himself. And God set the standard for moral absolute truth. He tells us what is right and what is wrong. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you have the light that leads to life. And I've been walking, was walking in darkness for so many years. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And it was through my relationship with Jesus, my connection through the Holy Spirit, I could now know absolute truth how God designed me and what was important to him. And I didn't have to walk out my life in the darkness of my own feelings and my desires. And I realized that I applied, as I applied his truth to my life, I became free from many of those missteps that I had made in life. And maybe some of you have experienced that same freedom. It's available for us all. When I came to Maui, I had spent the preceding nine years flying fast airplanes, 
skiing, the best mountain in America in Colorado. I had no other purpose in life other than to enjoy the day and do what was best for me. But I realize now I was subconsciously looking for a reason for my life, why God put me on the planet. And then when I got here to Kihei, I became part of Hope Chapel. I started reading promises like this. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. See, I discovered that God had a divine purpose for my life. And it echoes what Paul says in, in a passage of Scripture that changed my life, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul writes, you are God's workmanship. You're his poema. You're his work of art created anew in Christ Jesus so that you and I could do the good things he planned for us long ago. You see, when God created the earth, he had your name and my name in mind. He had purpose for us and specific plans uh, for us. So I asked him, Lord, what did you put me here for? You know what he said? Get ready. There's an adventure for you ahead. It's something that's going to just be way beyond your expectations. And you know what? Hope Chapel is a good place to be equipped for God's adventure for your life. Many churches are. Three years later, after he, uh, being involved in the Logo School of the Bible, Craig's Discipleship class, uh, small group, Ohana's, I became an Ohana leader. Three years later, I uh, volunteered to go for just two weeks to deliver supplies to these refugees from the war in Nicaragua, living in such a remote corner of eastern Honduras. And it was that time that the, uh, Augusto, a teacher, asked us to help him start a school. Two years later, we had 12 schools. 1990, the war ended. The refugees went back home. The Nicaraguan government invited us to become the community school. Two weeks has turned into 39 years, guys. And Laura and I are still working with the same communities. Imagine that. God did have a specific plan for my life. And of course, when you don't have a regular job and you don't receive a monthly paycheck, which I haven't since I left my photography business in 1981, finances can become a worry. But Jesus makes this promise to us all, and I want you to hear this. So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything that you need. And I can talk for hours of miraculous provision of God that has happened to Laura and I over the years, but time does not permit me today. Catch me outside, I'll tell you some stories. But many of us on Maui, we need to keep this promise close to our heart right now. There's great needs on this island. Finances can become a heavy burden to all of us. And when you add the tragedies that have happened to us in our communities, along with health and relational struggles, have you noticed life can become very heavy and depression and anxiety can set in? And it's rampant on our island right now. And that's why Jesus makes this promise to us. And please hear this promise. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. 
For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Wow, what a promise for these times on our island, for our nation, for the world as a whole. You know, according to recent studies, depression and anxiety affect over 50% of our teenagers in America. And Big Pharma is making billions of dollars dispensing medications for these societal maladies. But Jesus wants us to live each day in peace, despite the circumstances and without dependence on the drugs. I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and peace of heart. And the peace I give is a gift that the world cannot give. So don't be troubled and afraid. Please, those of you who need to hear this, receive that promise this morning. So what is the ultimate fear for many? It's death. None of us can escape it. The older we get, the more we see loved ones passing on, reminding us that ours is coming. But it's here that Jesus makes us all some very significant promises. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my Father's house. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you, so you'll always be with me wherever I am. Wow, what a promise. One of the reasons that most of the population of the Roman Empire became followers of Jesus was the manner in which many of those persecuted Christians faced death in the public arenas. Many were burned at the stake, others were devoured by wild animals, yet they faced death confidently, believing these promises of Jesus. Well, there's many more promises, but let's finish with John here. Is he has an encounter with Jesus and the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And this, John records, Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Then the day was now breaking. Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, do you not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Now, Peter decided to go fishing. Now, the Greek verb tense used here is the present infinitive, which means continuous and repeated action. It seems that Peter decided to abandon the ministry for his old profession, fishing. And they catch nothing. But there's a man on the beach that tells them to drop their nets on the right side of the boat, and their net is so full they couldn't haul it in. Does this sound familiar? This is exactly what happened to Peter three years earlier when Jesus called him to become a fisher of men. They realized it was the Lord. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish you've caught. And Simon Peter went and drew the net to land full of fish. 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus said, but none of the disciples wanted to question him. Who are you, knowing it was the Lord? Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Now remember, this is the first time we hear from Simon Peter all through this resurrection crucifixion. Remember the last time we heard from him? 
He's cursing Jesus in Caiaphas's courtyard that he doesn't know him. And Jesus looks at him, and Peter starts weeping and just walks away a broken man. He says nothing. And he's so disheartened that he's abandoning the ministry. But remember, in biblical culture, you only eat with your friends. And Jesus has a meal prepared for him. And he says, come on, Simon, come on, eat. We're still friends. The relationship is still on. And then he asks Peter a series of questions. And in the process, he gives Peter his marching orders for the rest of his life. And he also gives us our marching orders. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he uses the word agapao more than these. And I think he's referring to those 153 fish. And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he uses the word phileo. He said, Jesus said, then tend my lambs. See, John uses two different words here for love, agapao and phileo. Agapao is love for someone just intrinsically for who they are. It's nothing that they do for you. Phileo is brotherly love, and there's some implications of benefits from the relationship. C.S. Lewis defines these two types of love in his classic, The Four Loves. Agapao love is like two people facing and looking at each other. Phileo love is like two people standing shoulder to shoulder looking at the same thing. There's a difference. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. He said, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? <laughs> Peter was grieved because he said it a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, tend my sheep. Yeah, you notice Jesus switches from agapao to phileo. He asked him, Peter, do you really love me like a brother? Truly I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And this he said, signifying what kind of death he would glorify God and when he had spoken this. And he said to him, follow me. Now, aside from def defining the Peter... Jesus' relationship, Jesus is directing Peter as well as us as to what the remainder of our lives should be focused on, and that's the concept of discipleship. And in discipleship, there are two parts. There's being a disciple, follow me, and there's making disciples, tend my sheep, shepherd my lambs. Now, are we to, to really take this mission personally and take it seriously? Are we really to direct our personal time and resources to being a true follower of Jesus and all that that entails? Like developing the disciplines of knowing God better, reading his word, talking to him, obeying the things that he's telling you to do while curtailing our natural self-centered thinking and living? And then are we to devote our time to helping others in their relationship with God, teaching them the word, listening to them, praying with them, serving them. Matthew records Jesus giving the disciples and us the Great Commission, which echoes these two principles. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, 
all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What an audacious statement. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is saying the word go means literally proceed on the journey that you began with me and be aware of the people that I place you with and do your best to bring them into my family and make them followers, teaching them all that I taught you. You see, Jesus wants us to be part of his plan to reach all of humanity. And he makes a promise that he will be with us as we do this. So why should we be part of this great commission? Well, because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And how can we be sure of that? Once again, we come back to the hinge of Christianity because of the resurrection. And here's what Timothy Keller said. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, why worry about anything, he said. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like his teaching or not, but whether he rose from the dead. Now, Great opportunity, guys. We have this series coming up. We're looking for facilitators for our Ohana groups, and we're inviting you to come and be part of that, to embark on this seven-week study and really lock into this great commission of reaching our world. This is an opportunity. Are you going to take the great commission seriously? I got to tell you, it's going to be the adventure of your life if you say yes because it certainly has changed mine. And I just want to encourage you, hear the words that the Lord is speaking to each one of you today. Know that the resurrection is real. It changes everything about your life and my life. Take seriously what Jesus is saying to your hearts today. And those of you that came in here thinking it was all mythology, this is your time to pause and begin asking the Lord, is this really true? just like I did in 1981. Begin this conversation. Let him pull you in. He's been pursuing you for years, just like he pursued me. Father, I pray that you would speak to us the depths of our heart and soul, Lord, today. Holy Spirit, move upon us. Let us not be the same people that walked in here today. Let's take this word of the resurrection and take it to heart. Let us walk in the adventure that you've created for each one of us. Can we all say amen to that? Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We'd love to connect with you. Visit us at HopeChapelMaui.com and let us know any way we may be able to serve you. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at HopeChapelMaui. Stay up to date with all the latest. God bless you.